Hello, welcome to Warhorn Media's podcast of Out of Our Minds blog posts. This is episode 16, titled Gentle and Lowly in Context. It's by Tim Bailey. I'm also your reader. And the date is January 27, 2022. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland mentions a sermon by Charles Spurgeon opening up Jesus' promise recorded in Matthew eleven twenty nine, quote, I am meek, unquote. From Spurgeon's sermon, we read, quote, Our Savior, who never sought the praise of man, says of himself, I am meek, because he desired to remove the fears of those who trembled to approach him, unquote. But why would anyone listening to him be trembling to approach him? This question is clarified by looking at this gentle and lowly text context. So let's examine what Jesus did and said earlier in Matthew 11, just before his tender entreaty to sinners, from which Orland gets the title of his book. We'll take it bit by bit. First, we read that John the Baptist, who was in prison, sent his disciples to Jesus to ask if he was, quote, the expected one, unquote. Was he the promised Messiah? Jesus acknowledged he was, then spoke to the people gathered around concerning John the Baptist himself. Jesus proclaimed him to be a true prophet, and more specifically, the promised prophet who would announce God's anointed one. Then, having commended John's austerity, humility, and greatness, Jesus said, quote, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Verses 11 and 12. Would this not cause us to tremble, to approach Jesus? Jesus then issues his rebuke of, quote, this generation, unquote, not those people out there or that generation, but this generation. He's speaking to the people of God, as it were, the good church-going evangelicals. And he prefaces his rebuke with a statement, quote, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then this, he says, quote, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus adds, Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. That's Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 to 19. Scripture records it was the Jews and their religious leaders who condemned Jesus for eating, drinking, and befriending sinners. If you will, it was the good Reformed evangelicals and their pastors and seminary profs who never stopped criticizing Jesus. Would this condemnation by Jesus not cause those listening to tremble? Had we been there, would any of us have not feared to approach the Son of Man, knowing how fickle our own hearts are and how many times we had wished Jesus were different than he was? 
Would we not tremble as we remembered how often we had been displeased with him, even condemning him for being a libertine and a contrarian? We had judged him for seeming to enjoy putting his thumb in the eye of all the men we respected, instead surrounding himself with a tax collector and smelly fishermen. Now then, here is what Jesus said immediately preceding his call, Come to me, the passage Ortwin bases his book, Gentle and Lowly, on. Quote, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Unquote. This is verses 20 to 24. Who were the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, Jesus contrasts with the people of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom? The people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were the very men and women who had been granted the privilege of witnessing Jesus' miracles. Jesus goes on to testify against them that if Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom had been granted this tremendous privilege, they, quote, would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, and thus would not have been consumed by God's judgment and wrath. The people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were more proud, hard-hearted, faithless, and unbelieving than the people of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. The Old Testament records how God, from his perfections of wrath and justice, had consumed the wicked men and women of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, none of whom were God's people of the covenant. The people of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom were uncircumcised. That's Jesus' point. These uncircumcised pagans of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom were better men and women than God's covenant and circumcised people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, who he had been blessing with the majority of his miracles in preaching. The pagans would have repented, but the people of God refused to repent, even as Jesus worked wonders in their midst. Matthew records for us that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were, quote, the cities in which most of his miracles were done, unquote. Acknowledging the residents of these three cities were the focus of Jesus' miracles and preaching ministry. Some have titled them the, quote, evangelical triangle, unquote. These three cities Jesus condemned are just off the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Chorazim is just two miles from Capernaum, with all three cities within five miles of each other. Today, we might designate this evangelical triangle to be Wheaton, Naperville, and Carroll Stream. Carroll Stream is a couple miles from Wheaton, and all three cities are within eight miles of each other.
The point was, these cities were proud, hard-hearted, faithless, and unbelieving in the very face of the witness to them of the second member of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ. They would not humble themselves. After all, they had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their fathers. Moses is their lawgiver, and David is their great king. They needed no upstart, surrounded by disreputables. Who was he anyway? No one. Who were his disciples? Men of no importance. These Jews of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were absolutely certain Jehovah loved them and hated Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. After all, he destroyed Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, hadn't he? Meanwhile, here they were sitting pretty and repeating, Temple of the Lord! Temple of the Lord! Temple of the Lord! They were secure in Zion. They were without compunction of conscience, complacent and presumptuous. When Jesus popped their bubble with these words intended and perfectly honed to strike them with the most awful terror. Quote, you will descend to Hades. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Unquote. Now, picture again the context for Jesus presenting himself as, quote, meek and gentle of heart, unquote. He just declared that the kingdom of God is, quote, taken by force, and that it is, quote, violent men who seize it. He just condemned them for saying about that great prophet John the Baptist, quote, he has a demon. He just condemned them for taunting him, their Messiah, quote, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He just told them Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom were better than they were, and that God's judgment of his own people of the covenant there in the evangelical triangle of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum would be worse than his notorious judgments of the uncircumcised of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Sodom! So at this point, after his excoriations, who's left listening, and what is their thinking? Are they thinking that the, quote, very heart, unquote, of Jesus is meekness and gentleness? Here's the next thing Jesus says immediately prior to his come to me. Listen in to his prayer uttered just then, quote, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Verses 25 to 27. <clears throat> Would I have heard any promise in this, our Lord's Prayer? Specifically, would I have thought myself an infant or the man who is wise and intelligent? Of course, wise and intelligent. And so I would have been offended and angry that Jesus was relegating me to those from whom the things of God are hidden. Unless that is the Son wills to reveal the Father to me, whatever that means, and whoever the Son is. 
At this point, if I'm there listening, I'm cringing with fear while also bursting with fury. Who does this man, Jesus, think he is? I mean, the guy is so very self-important. Delusions of grandeur, I say. Dane Ortland reassures us that Jesus' quote, heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures, unquote. Had I been there, I wouldn't have given a thought to my foibles. I would have been desperate to have God show me mercy, but what, after what Jesus had just done and said, I would know God and Jesus Christ was too severe a taskmaster for me ever to make the grade. No, I would have heard his wrath and judgment and would be on the verge of giving up now and eternally. Nothing as light as foibles and insecurities and anxieties would have troubled me. It would have been my depravity and the ever-burning fires of Hades that had my total attention. Everyone there listening to Jesus' command, come to me, would have watched as the proud, complacent, and presumptuous who were offended by Jesus telling them they would be damned in Hades. All of them departed. Only the humble and timid were left. But even they had been reduced to a pool of tears by Jesus' truthful warnings and condemnations. Was there any slightest hope for them? Is there any slightest hope for me? Everyone left there, alone with Jesus, was tempted to think evil of Jesus. This is what Calvin says. They would have been inclined to accuse him, and thus God, of being a taskmaster impossible to please. So what's the use? Might as well just give up. Then, right then, it was that Jesus said to that group, so bedraggled and hopeless after seeing and hearing the heart of Jesus, his, quote, very heart of wrath and judgment, who he really is in his inmost being. Quote, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Unquote. Those who heard this tender assurance, reassurance, and who had not been driven away by their pride like the rest were raised from despair and death. This was not superficial wrath and light condemnation, with love being much deeper and truer. They had seen and heard the very heart of God, over and over again, on full display in everything Jesus had just said, so that none of them would ever have believed Ortland's summary of who Jesus really is. Orland writes, quote, If Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line of the About Me drop-down would be, and then in all uppercases, uh, Orland puts it, gentle and lowly in heart. Nor would they have believed this summary of who Jesus really is, according to Orland in his book, quote, What helium does to a balloon, 
Jesus yoked us to his followers, we are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. His tender embrace is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning, unquote. Now, we would have thought a madman had come among us and was spouting his insanity, if anybody had said that. Jesus had just shown his fearful heart of wrath, anger, justice, and righteous condemnation, so that those perfections of God would all be fully in mind when he then meekly and gently called those remaining with him to come to him. Ortland can only ever offer superficial healing because he makes God's wrath superficial. The lighter you make the justice of God, the lighter his grace becomes, and the less his promise that he is meek and humble of heart matters. And we did so not forgetting who he really is, but seeing even more of his perfections, trusting that if we came to him, we would not find only his anger, wrath, and justice, but also his mercy and grace, imputing to us his perfect righteousness. That's the end of the post, and then uh, three asterisks separating this text. I say, we don't bother dealing with Ortland's blasphemy, and then this quote from Ortland's book, he writes, quote, and if the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he most deeply is, we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him, unquote. That's from page 30. Thank you for listening. Do us a favor and subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends they can now subscribe to audio recordings of Warhorn posts here. Until our next post, our next recording, stay warm, devote yourself to loving your neighbor, and love God with all your heart and mind.